Hi there, it's Jenny, one of the co-founders here at Hysterical, an inclusive platform designed for women by women to come together and ensure coming of age stories and embrace the magic of menopause. In our latest episode, we are joined by Dr. Sue Davis, a world-renowned expert in understanding sex hormones, particularly testosterone. Dr. Sue delves into the fascinating world of menopause. We cover her work on testosterone, and then we go on to speak to menopause care, hormone replacement therapy, and the infamous Women's Health Initiative. She also breaks down the importance between body-identical and bio-identical hormones, details you need to know to make an informed decision about your own HRT and menopause journey. So without further ado, I'm going to drop you straight into the conversation. Enjoy. Hello and welcome. You are here for another hysterical talk show. Today, um, as always, I'm Amanda Kasgar, <laughs> one of the co-founders of Hysterical. Uh, but today, specifically, I'm really, really honored and a bit nervous to be joined by Professor Susan Davis. She's the head of Monash University Women's Health Research Program and holds a Level 3 NHMRC investor grant. She's a consultant, endocrinologist, and head of the Women's Endocrine Clinic at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. And she's a fellow and council member of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences. So an endocrinologist and a clinical researcher, which I think um, makes her the powerhouse that she is. She wears two hats. She's dedicated her life to understanding the physiological changes that occur during menopause and the struggles we as women face during this period. She's an expert on medical and lifestyle interventions for managing menopause, including hormone therapy and the impact of sex hormones on multiple non-reproductive target tissues, such as the brain, cardiovascular system, et cetera. And, you know, we've called this show testosterone in women, because that is um, often referred to as the man's hormone. And I would argue that Dr. Davis is the world's expert in testosterone in women um, and many, many other things. I think you've been practicing for over 48 years um, and know well more than any of us combined. So we're really thrilled to have you here. Welcome to the show. Uh, hi, good morning and good evening. I'm, I'm not sure what time you are at, but it's morning for me. So good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, I'm glad you're, I'm, I sort of wish I, it was morning so I could be having coffee uh, with you. That's one of my most favorite rituals of the day. Um, you know, before everybody started to join us, Dr. Davis was schooling me on the quackery um, sort of prevalent in the medical profession, especially here in this country. And I think there's um, a unique, not a uniqueness, but um, from my perspective, sitting here in the US, the, the Australian medical system is a bit further ahead than us because of how you all trade and care for patients and it feels very patient forward. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Not to make us jealous or have FOMO, but I think it's really good context. Well, um, I would say if you wound the clock back 10 years, we we're in a really good place. Presently, things aren't as good as they were, but we have a medical system where there is universal health coverage. That's the first thing. So if any woman turns up to her doctor with pelvic pain, for example, it won't cost her anything to get an ultrasound. That's a big difference, right? She doesn't have to be employed and have a health insurance package. Um, and so we have universal health cover and it is practices hinged around the primary care physician. So, but unlike the NHS in the UK, you can choose your primary health care physician and the primary health care physician refers you on to a specialist as needed. So I'm an endocrinologist. If somebody rang up my consulting rooms and said, I want to see Professor Davis, if they don't have a referral from their doctor, they'll have to pay completely out of pocket. No insurance will cover them. If they've got a referral from their primary physician, they'll be covered. So the primary care physician is the custodian of care. And they do the, well, baby care. Like you would never take your child to a pediatrician unless the child was ill. You would, they do the, the um, the gynecological care, the average woman does not see a gynecologist for, well, perhaps means of change now, but for cervical screening or any testing or assessment, unless they've got a medical problem rather than healthy screening. So mm -hmm. the problem we've got at the moment is that fewer and fewer doctors are choosing primary care. So we do have a bit of a, a crisis in primary care, but that's how the system works. And and it's whole system care. So if I if 
I'm a primary care patient and say I'm having trouble with my menopause and I'm a bit overweight and the, I can get a, a healthcare plan where my health cover will enable me to see an, an exercise physician, an exercise physiologist, a dietitian, a psychologist, et cetera, in the, under the healthcare plan. And there's this one person, this general practitioner that's holding the care of that one patient. I think that's really remarkable. Yeah. yeah, the custodian, you know, my mom is 77. She had a stroke a few months ago and, um, you know, m- most of her children live out of state. And so we've been coming in to help and attend these, these appointments with her. And it is, it is literally like reading another language, trying to navigate all the different doctors that she's seeing and no one's talking to each other. So there's an endocrinologist that's addressing her diabetes but then there's like a whole other endocrinologist for something else you know it's just um very tangled and so um it's nice to see a different system that that might work a little bit differently but how did you come to endocrinology so you know a lot of the experts that we've um talked to or will talk to are maybe reluctant experts in menopause i would say um and as someone who studied endocrinology did you know that um this might be your future as um an expert in this space no. Uh, so I did my training for my specialty training at um, what was then Prince Henry's Hospital in Melbourne, and it was a leading centre of um, IVF. It was one of the, uh, Melbourne was the first IVF baby. It was one of the foremost centres of IVF and reproductive endocrinology in the field of endocrinologists, not gynecologists. And I was going to go down that path. And in, and as a senior hospital resident, uh, you who use different language, we called a registrar. I used to have to see women in the menopause clinic. It was the first menopause clinic in Australia. And I hated going to that clinic. But I don't know, just doors open, you walk through them. And you, yeah. it wasn't a planned situation. Um, I saw things I... In fact, what happened, I'd done my PhD and in the clinic that um, Henry Berger and a guy called John Studd in the UK published the first papers of testosterone in women for sexual function. So it is relevant to this conversation. And I was aghast, like who would give women testosterone? Oh my God, they're going to do terrible things to their hearts. And so I set up this study on the smell of an oily rag where I randomly allocated women to either estrogen alone or estrogen with testosterone. And these women were in the study for two years. Very unusual study. And every six months they had bloods and the bone density and sexual function questionnaire. It was a blinded study. And at the end of two years, when we analyzed the data, I discovered that um, testosterone not only improved sexual function, but in this small study, it improved their bone density and it didn't do anything bad to their cholesterol profile or anything else. And I'm like, Oh my God, this stuff actually is okay. So that mm-hmm. was, and I think. Was your hypothesis that it would improve sexual function or, or was there a different hypothesis? My hypothesis was, was that it would be bad for them, that would their cholesterol would go <laughs> up and that they'd gain weight and they'd get hairy and it would do terrible things. Yeah. And I was quite shocked. So I went in there as a sort of a, non-believer um doesn't mean I became a believer I still believe in evidence-based medicine but this was a situation that showed me that the evidence was counter to what I believed and therefore you follow the evidence and I think that probably catapulted me into it and the other major thing was in in the 1990s there was a huge belief that estrogen protected against heart disease and we did a again I initiated a, a study looking at estrogen and cholesterol levels. And that got published in the New England Journal. And once you get a paper in the New England Journal in a particular field, that you sort of careers catapulted forward. And I think you you've been published something chance. like 435 times. Is that right? Sorry? I, I read somewhere you've been published something like 435 times. Yeah, that and a bit more now. Yeah. Yeah. You're, I mean, it's so cool. It's so cool. So oh, um, when, like, when you were working with Henry and this other guy, what year was that? Just to give us a little bit of context. Oh, I, all right. I'm very old. I graduated in 81, um, but I was only, you can, you can work out my age. Um, I'm 65. <laughs> so I was, I was young. I was 22 when I graduated medicine 
And so, um, and I did my specialty training. So it's about seven years here. And I did my PhD while I was doing it. So, um, but that work was in the 80s. And then in the 90s, it was like HRT just blew up. Everybody was on HRT. And then it became this whole hassle. There was the believers and non-believers and, and, and people were sort of screaming at banshees like each other. The, the feminists were saying, oh, this is manipulating women. This is trying to make women into sexual objects for men. Mm-hmm. And the others saying, we want HRT because it makes us feel better. And it's mm-hmm. just really interesting having lived through that to see it again. Yeah, no kidding. So I think what you're referring to, you know, this there were some, um, I don't know if it was advertisements or there were some things sort of back in the day at the advent of HRT that talked about be, like staying beautiful for a man. I mean, is that there's, there's I, I saw an adver- advertisement sometime then. And I think um, it's interesting to understand now because we as a generation are in the um, overdraft of the Women's Health Initiative um, debacle. And, and we can see where the controversy is coming back and forth around, like, does it ca- cause cancer? Does it not cause cancer? And to, to be reliving history, but the argument to be different is, is kind of interesting because you've been there on the front lines for it all, right? Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting watching history repeat itself. And, um, and the arguments have slightly changed, but there are a lot of women, um, there were the feminists, also the feminists are quite interesting because a lot of them were sort of about don't make us objects for men, but a lot of, at the same time, women were saying, well, hang on, if it makes my skin and my hair better, not that I'm saying it does, but I mean, if you want to protect your skin, stay out of the sun, but if it makes my skin and my hair better, I want to stay young and beautiful forever too. So the, mm-hmm. the women were sort of arguing against each other. It was really, it's a, it, it was and remains a fascinating thing. Yeah. I mean, it's so layered. I mean, the con like the cultural context that we bring to it and, and our like the psychology around it is one whole conversation that we could have. And then I think the, the other piece, which is, you know, what's happening to us specifically in our body is really layered and convoluted too, and really confusing. Um, because you and I, when we first chatted, and I want to bring this conversation to this audience, because to me, this is the conversation to have in the moment. Um, you know, th- for a while, we thought, we thought, I'm going to say we as the royal we as, as like a, an uneducated non-doctor sort of on the precipice of menopause, not knowing much, you know, my experience of menopausal symptoms were being, you know, someone in the U.S. were hot flashes predominantly. That's all I knew. And then I started getting into the subject. And now I, I learn that there are what, 34 to 40 different symptoms or corollary symptoms to menopause. And then um, what you and I were talking about is how we're, we've swung the pendulum and now we're in this moment, menopause is having another moment, it's come around again, much like um, it did in the 90s, where HRT is a big conversation. There's a massive article in the New York Times, which is our paper of record here, um, about the WHI study and um, how women have been mis- misled about around menopause. And you're seeing the same thing in your country, women coming in who actually might be depressed and have a history of clinical depression, but are now... Um, correlating it to menopause in, instead of their history of depression um, versus the, the opposite, you know, where some women are coming in with depression and it's actually menopause. So again, it's super duper tangled, but can you share with us a little bit about what you're seeing and how that pendulum has swung so forcefully back? Well, I, I read a really interesting article and I guess someone you might talk to is a woman in Brisbane. She's quite, she's younger than me. And um She's, she's a professor of anthropology and she wrote this article really resonated with me and it was actually about women with ADHD mm. and she was talking about um, chat rooms and ADHD and the fact is and I think you could have taken that word out and put menopause in and I think this is complicated I support support groups and chat rooms and I think the lived experience is very important to share to know what other people's experiences are But sometimes I think there has to be a level of caution because there is a list of multiple symptoms of menopause, but there are only a few cardinal symptoms that make you confident that it's menopause. And so what this woman was saying is with, say, ADHD, a woman can enter the chat room and you can have brain fog, trouble concentrating, um, fatigue, 
And if you have any of those, that makes you a member of this group. And, but that could make you a member of a menopause chat room too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That could make you a member of a underactive thyroid chat room. You know, which chat room do you belong in? And if you happen to stance upon one where some of your symptoms fit that group, you can almost self-diagnose and, and feel relieved that all the problems you're having are from that. So, for example, fatigue is the one that women keep coming up with. There are so many reasons for fatigue. But, you know, the classic is, say, iron deficiency. Mm -hmm. you know, we've shown that about 25% of women in their 40s have got iron deficiency. So if you don't look at the whole landscape and the holistic approach to health, it's very easy to identify with a group with a condition because some of your symptoms are in that list of 35. And that list of 35 aren't all due to menopause, I can assure you. Mm -hmm. and, and what do you think are the cardinal symptoms? So what, yeah, have you experienced? Oh, look, we've agonized over this because we're working, we're working on um practitioner, we've done practitioner guidelines, but we're updating them and we're working on practitioner guidelines to help our primary care physicians to navigate the menopause. And look, the absolute cardinal symptom is hot flushes and night sweats. But be mindful that 30% of women after pregnancy or or, pre or or during their menstruation get hot flushes and night sweats. Mm -hmm. So they do, you know, they, menopause does not own hot flushes and night sweats. Um, anxiety is a classic menopausal symptom but and low mood. But we've, we did a study of 7,000 women recruited at random, aged 18 to 39, and 30% of those women have low, have, have moderate to severe depressive symptoms. But they're 35% of 18 to 39 year olds. Yeah. Wow. Yes. And that's, and we have compulsory voting in Australia. So everybody's on the electoral roll, so we can do a random sample. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what I'm saying is anxiety and low mood can be menopause, but can be other things. And the critical yeah. thing, the absolutely critical thing is trying to unpick what's going on for an individual so that whatever their symptom is, the root cause or the root causes are identified so that they can be properly addressed. But I've, I've been trying to work with someone who has severe clinical depression and she's been treated with massive doses of estrogen, like mega doses, and it's done nothing for her. And we've got to try and get her off the estrogen and treat her depression. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's not easy it is not no. easy no I mean it's it's all tangled and I think that's the the thing that we're learning and why we all um want to create community around this and share it not to create a, like hysteria or a hysterical culture but really yeah. to um be educated so that we can advocate for ourselves and I think you know like I mean, you've been practicing for 48 years, you see, and you've been doing all this clinical research, you've had access to data of thousands of women over like very, you know, um, robust studies. Um, like as a, as, an, as a practitioner and an expert, how, how do you start to, like, is there any advice that you can give to us to start to tease apart? Like, I'll give you a personal example. Two days ago, I was, I was like, I'm depressed. I feel depressed, I feel sad, I'm very tired. Um, I have shingles. And I was just low mood and I was really being a victim to my, my exhaustion is I think the, the long and short of it. And I journaled the next morning and I was like, I'm being a victim. And then I like kind of pulled myself out of it. So I, I was like depressed for 24 hours, but I like went down a full rabbit hole. And then I was like, maybe I'm just PMSing. And I don't know I'm PMSing because I'm on an IUD and I don't get my period anymore. So there, you know, like layer that in, you know, like how do we know what's PMS? versus perimenopause versus just being 44 having a two and a half year old and a day job you know like I think that's what's so wild about being the sandwich generation and having a wake-up call around menopause is that everything feels like everything yeah and I, it's everything I do, everywhere all at once <laughs> yeah and I'm I do get it I um I had four kids and I worked full-time and I do understand but um I think Firstly, be kind to yourself. No normal person feels 100% all the time. You know, my life can be going along swimmingly 
and then one day I just feel irritable or and I can't or I'm tired um maybe your quality of sleep last night wasn't that great um if you've got shingles you're probably you by definition have run down because your immune system's but you know <laughs> so then you've yeah. got to say I've got shingles I've obviously been burning the candle at both ends no I've just been doing what I need to do yes maybe you're doing but you need some time out and if you know tuck yourself into bed early one night I remember once I'll I had four I had four kids between the ages of sort of zero and six. And, but when they were a bit old one night, I'd had enough. So I went around the house. I turned all the clocks ahead an hour and put them all to bed an hour early. Because they were trying <laughs> to realize that I'd actually done it. I said, okay, bedtime. They're going, Come, bedtime, mummy. We haven't whatever. And I'm like, no, it's bedtime. Look, it's it's 7:30, bedtime. Off we go. Yeah. So you gotta be I so I think I'm of the generation where we wanted to have it all. We were the ones mm-hmm. that said you know, we can have higher education, we can work full time, we can have kids, we can travel, we can do everything. And it was exhausting. It is exhausting. And, and I think that, so stopping and being kind to yourself is really important. Yeah, thank you. I, I love what you said, nobody feels 100%, 100% of the time, something like that. I mean, we'll pull the quote, but it's a great reminder. And so hard to remember sometimes. I mean, I wake up some mornings, and I feel like, I'm aching all over and I'm a bag of bones. And the next morning I wake up and I could go for a run. You know, I, yeah. why? I don't know. Our body clocks, what I've eaten. I I don't know. Yeah. Life. Yeah. 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 And I think we're living also in this culture of like total human optimization and I can be eating for my brain and my body and like hacking my sleep. And like, there's so much information that in some, in some cases, I feel like we're over, we're over indexing on information and we could just like feel and be a little bit more, um, or a little less informed in some cases. Yeah. So I think, and I think when it comes, what I've seen is a shift in care of women going through perimenopause and postmenopause. So menopause is the last period. So once you, or, or the last ovarian function. So once you've gone through menopause, you are postmenopause for the rest of your life. No one likes that word, but it's the word. Um, and, every, and people are now coming in and say, well, I want to be on this and I want to be on something that's natural for my body. And I want to, and I'm like, well, you know, what you need to be on is the best formulation for you. Mm-hmm. And we were talking earlier about progesterone and everybody's hung up about progesterone. Can I just say progesterone isn't the best thing since sliced bread. Mm. For a lot of women, the dose is insufficient to protect the lining of their uterus. A lot of women have more side effects on progesterone than they do on the synthetic progestogens. And the synthetic ones aren't all evil. You know, so I think um, menopausal hormone therapy after menopause is not natural. Yeah. Even if you want to talk about, you know, estradiol being like your body or progesterone like your body or whatever, it's still not natural. So women yeah, need to yeah. take what is safest and best for them and give them the least side effects and the best quality of life. And it is not always the so-called body or bioidenticals. They're not perfect either. And I think women need to aware be aware of that. Well, and I, I mean, it's very confusing. Like, okay, there's the bio and body identical. And then there's like some people hold body bioidentical is natural and body identical is not natural like you put this word natural you bring that around it that has all its baggage like just like again put it to the side find a great practitioner work in practice work together with them to create a solution yeah. for you and and yeah feel good about what the protocol is for your body is that, is that right yes and so so if you talk about progesterone for someone who is just peri or early postmenopause, the ovaries are still intermittently working. And even postmenopause, women, it's not uncommon for women to have an ovulation. Even though we say your ovaries are uh, defunct, it's not uncommon for a woman to have an ovulation even one or two years postmenopause. So the ovaries mm. can still sort of burst into action briefly. <laughs> and, and the and you're still can have fluctuating levels of estrogen. So for many women in that very early transition, during the transition and early post, 
progesterone is not sufficient to protect the lining of the uterus. And so I often use synthetic progestins in that time and then say to women, when everything settles down, we might move across to mm -hmm. progesterone. But don't, don't get your knickers in the knot about it being the most perfect, bioidentical, natural thing. Well, it's not, not natural. That's Natural should go out the window. There's, not, there's no progesterone plant. There's no progesterone um, estrogen plant. There's nothing natural about this. Yeah. Um, and the best thing for you right now, and then we can look at the landscape and we can change it over time. And I think women are missing that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good reminder. And, and I mean, we're going, we're, you know, going deep into progesterone and here you are this expert on testosterone um, and the correlating effect. So, you know, I, I don't think it's um, beyond the pale to assume that we, you know, all sort of carry testosterone as the men's hormone and, you know, it's the male hormone, you know, there's all this language around it. And even, you know, your hypothesis that testosterone, you know, when you did that study um, back in the nineties, sort of you know, sort of didn't attribute it to having positive, cor you know, corollaries for women and, and long-term women's health. So um, what's the testosterone one on, on? What do we need to know? Um, yeah, what's helpful for us to like have as a, as a foundation of knowledge in this space? So we didn't know a lot about testosterone until after that time, because basically um, we didn't have the ability to measure testosterone in the concentrations that it occurs in women. So we use different units too, guys, okay? So we, we use nanomoles per liter, but it, then the units don't matter, it's the ratios. So um, the average man will have a testosterone between about 10 and 30 nanomoles per liter. The average woman will have a testosterone during her reproductive life of about, 0.3 to 0.5, right? So much lower levels than seen in men. But if you look at um, postmenopausal women, their, their testosterone, oh, it's so complicated. Their testosterone has declined, but we use, but it's in much smaller units. So in the past, it could not be measured. So we did the first study in published in 2005 where we actually measured testosterone levels in women aged 18 to 75. And what we showed was that testosterone levels decline between the ages of 18 and 45, quite steeply. The steepest decline is between the age of 20 and 40. And then the, it, it, it sort of, sort of comes down like this, then it plateaus out and the lowest levels are women in their 60s. And then we saw this sort of slight increase, which we thought that's a bit odd but we didn't have enough older women to be sure. And we've subsequently gone back and repeated this with very highly sensitive measures now called mass spectrometry. And we show that the decline between the ages of 20 and 40 is about 25%. Wow. It then bottoms out, but by the time women are 70, their blood levels of the testosterone are the same as when they're in their 20s, goes up. Oh, why do you think and that is? We don't know. We're trying to understand it. We've just published a paper showing that after the age of, and we had, for women after the age of 70, we had 5,000 women. Don't worry. It's Whoa, big numbers. That's amazing. They're age 70. And I mean, I'm hearing the word testosterone and I'm also like in my brain going to horny. So like your horny is from 18 to 25 and then you bottom out and then at 70, you get horny again. And I, and I'm, and I don't want to like... But, um, you know, well, make it too basic, but that's that's where my listening is. <laughs> well, um, what we do see is it's um, women with the lowest levels had a twofold greater risk of cardiac events. Okay, so not just so it's it is to it that it, it's doing something physiologically that we don't really understand, and we're doing a lot of work on that at the moment. But going mm. back to to the midlife women, women at the it bottoms out around the age of sixty. Not, so testosterone levels do not change acutely at menopause. Okay. Shown that. Um, we're repeating this work using mass spec, so we've, we'll have some more information coming out in a while. But um, And then we've looked at the world literature on this very carefully, and the very clear evidence is that the only 
effects of testosterone replacement that have been clearly demonstrated are improvement in sexual desire and arousal. In, a, in the studies involving thousands of women, we did not show improved mode, but we're now looking at muscle and bone because the studies in muscle and bone have been very, you know, they're, they're like less than 100 women in each study. They're very small studies. They're very conflicting in their conduct. They're not well done, including studies we did years ago. They're not well done. So we're mm -hmm. really interested in looking at testosterone and muscle, testosterone and bone, testosterone and heart function. And that's where we're going with it. But for women who experience low desire and low arousal, it can improve those things. And it's in, and it needs to be given in safe doses for women. And what about the correlation to, to cardiovascular and heart disease? Are you seeing um, women who supplement with that? Is there a, a, a positive indication? That's never been shown. Um, the okay. studies, the studies that looked at midlife women showed a neutral effect on cardiovascular function, um, etc. But in older women, we showed a positive association. So we haven't published this, the paper's under review, but in the 5,000 women aged 70 to 94, testosterone blood testosterone levels not taking testosterone is favor is women who with high levels have more favorable cholesterol profiles hmm. is there any is correlation it a cause or an effect yeah. What's the chicken yeah. and the egg? we don't know so sure. but taking testosterone through a patch or a gel through the skin is in menopause you know women in their 50s and 60s is neutral on the cardiovascular system okay um I um I want to ask about diabetes because it doesn't seem like something that people are correlating to menopause or or hormonal replacement therapy, and um we're certainly in a crisis of of diabetes type two diabetes in this country, um and not just for women but um I wonder if if there's any you know future studies that are going to look at that or if 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 I'm like barking up the wrong tree of comorbidity. Okay, so. During the menopausal transition, women increase their central abdominal fat. Even if you don't gain weight, and even if your belly size doesn't increase, more fat still goes around your organs, like your liver, etc. And that is a menopause transition thing, and that increases the risk of diabetes. But also what happens when estrogen levels fall, um, I'll go backwards, in a premenopausal healthy person, when you eat sugar, a lot of the glucose is disposed of into muscle tissue and estrogen helps that depositing of glucose into muscles. So you've got glucose there ready for your, your function, right? So estrogen does several things. It helps, it helps glucose go into muscle. It is involved in in insulin production effectively. It's involved in women with higher you know when your estrogens normally you eat less and um, it is involved in fat metabolism so when estrogen levels fall all these things change and increase the risk of type 2 diabetes so postmenopausal women are at increased risk of type 2 diabetes women who go through early menopause have a significantly greater risk of type 2 diabetes i was just reviewing the literature on that this week and it's pretty solid. Um, so there is an increased risk, but dare I say, the dominating effect is still environmental. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I see that. So if you compound somebody who's already overweight or has obesity with menopause, you've now got two factors. Right. I mean, in your country and in our country, the primary issue is overweight and obesity. And I'm not politically correct, correct at all. It's the social acceptance of it too. I mean, sort of okay. Right, For most right. People. And a lot of the number of women who say to me, well, I've gained a few pounds, but I guess that's what ex you expect as you get old. It's like, no, you don't have to. Yeah, it's yeah. <sighs> yeah. Um, we have a question from um, our co-founder, Jenny, who's most excited about this topic, but it's 1 a.m. in the UK, so she wasn't able to join us. So I, I'm going to share her question now, Dr. Davis. Um, she's asking about HRT 
and why it is recommended that women start taking HRT within 10 years after menopause or 10 years of their last period? Why is it considered risky for women 10 years or more, or more post-menopause? I'm curious oh, why my mom- question. Yeah, she said, my mom's 76 and 26 years postmenopausal cannot begin using HRT for the first time. And she has terrible sleep, cognitive decline, and she broke her wrist her wrist last year. Um, what potential risks are associated? And she, yeah, she wants to know what the research is on this. It's a great question. Okay. So it was Jenny, wasn't it? Yeah. So for Jenny's mother, if her symptoms are cognitive decline and poor sleep, um, I would not be recommending estrogen because there'd be absolutely no evidence that estrogen is going to help her for those symptoms, okay? And it could do more harm than good in her. And, um, in fact, people with poor sleep rhythms are at greater risk of cognitive decline, and the most important thing would be helping her mother get back to some sleep rhythm with some light night intervention, um, melatonin, I don't know what, but sleep hygiene would be the single most important thing for her mother. And this, and the other thing is cognitive decline sets in, sleep becomes disturbed as a secondary effect. Estrogen will not help her mother. But if a 70, so a 76-year-old woman comes in to see me, she's got all her marbles, when no issue there, and she said, I can't do it anymore. The hot flushes, the sweats, I'm playing bridge, and the sweat's dripping down my face. I can't deal with it. When I put her on load, I would first try non-hormonal options, but I would, if the risks were low, I would give her, I'd trickle in a very low dose of estrogen, yes. So so coming back to the question though, it's really timely. Um, we've just written some big review articles that um, are under, invited articles, and I hope they get published in the big journal. And we've thrown down the gauntlet and said, this is ridiculous. Who invented these stupid ideas? So after <laughs> do you say that in the article? I hope you do. Oh, we I say we we say that, that it, they're not they're not evidence-based and need recon, urgent reconsideration because all right, so you've got to firstly the recommendation is in one sentence, HRT is only recommended within six years of menopause, 10 years of menopause and before the age of 60. Okay. So what do you do if you're 56, you go through menopause, you've seen several doctors, and now you're 63, your symptoms are killing you. You haven't been on HRT, which rule applies under the age of 60 or within 10 years of menopause? I don't know. Yeah. And then what about the 35 year old who was told by her GP that she doesn't need HRT for her premature ovarian insufficiency, turns up at 48, more than 10 years post-menopause, but under the age of 60, which rule applies? It's a, it's stupid. Before you start, it's stupid. It's brain dead. <laughs> because it was yeah. dreamt up by people who are epidemiologists and never practice medicine. Yep. That's the first thing. Then you go and look at the evidence and the evidence to me, I have poured over the WHI data that generated this and I cannot work it out. It doesn't hold water because it, you know, if you look at women 60 to 69 and you look at say stroke, there was no difference between HRT and placebo and stroke in in some of the age groups. I think for 60 to 69, there was a small difference in stroke during the study. And then in the long-term follow-up, there was no difference in stroke. Well, the average so, age of the women in the study was 63. And but when the they broke it down was, into right? age groups. Okay. When they broke it down into age groups. Women aged 50 to 59, there was no difference in stroke with HRT. 70 to 79, there was no difference in stroke. And 60 to 69, there was a small increase of risk of stroke during the study, but not in the 18 years follow-up, in the whole thing. In the... So right. you're like, why would I say to somebody they can't have HRT based on this? And as we know, this is only oral estrogen and, proge and, and progestin. So what does this mean if someone's on like a 25 microgram patch, just trickling a bit of hormone to make her feel better? Yeah. Yep. And the benefit for fracture was dramatic. So we've we've actually in in a couple of 
articles, I'm I'm calling out this decision that I think it needs urgent review because we've got a whole lot of women in their 60s who are being told they shouldn't be on HRT or can't take it. Yep. We um, were having uh, Avram Blumming and Carol Travers who wrote the book Estrogen Matters that really just refutes the whole WHI study on the uh, show in, in July. So we'll go really deep into um, really refuting that study and, and all the things that we know now. Um, but yeah, it's, but, yeah, it is crazy. Can I just say, I wouldn't, I don't think we should bag the study. I think it, the study was conducted do you remember I said very early on in this interview that in the 90s we had a paper in New England Journal that showed that estrogen re reduce, was good for the heart, reduced cholesterol mm -hmm. levels. The mm -hmm. whole premise of WHI was cardiovascular protection. It was never conducted to look at symptoms or women at perimenopause, or the, the average age of menopause is in, in developed countries is 51. They only recruited women age 50 and above. It was so it taught us a lot. It taught us that oral HRT causes thrombosis. It taught us that estrogen prevents fracture even women in women without osteoporosis. It taught us, I think we should take away what it gives us. Right, so right, right, but not all the garbage, right? Yeah, so I don't think the thing is to bag WHI. I think it is to understand the hypothesis of the study was that estrogen prevented heart disease in women at an average age of 63, and it didn't. Having said that, although estrogen only did, actually. But having said that, um, it should never be the dangers of WHI, of the knee-jerk reaction, and then having suddenly the whole world being told you shouldn't prescribe HRT for women under 60 or, or uh, over 60 or beyond 10 years from menopause. That's the danger of the study. So looking at it, each individual study needs and piece of research needs to look at why was it done and what does it tell us and where are the limitations? Well, because you were prescribing endocrinologists before, during, and after that study, and now. So, what have you seen in your? I mean, has has your has your um, HRT prescribing shifted in that, or have you held the course because you read the study and you? I'm on the dark side. I never changed what I did. Yeah, <laughs> you're not the dark side. You're totally badass. I love it. I, I so never cool. changed. When we're becoming into me, said my doctor said I have to stop. I'm like, ah, ignore them. Yeah. I'm your doctor. <laughs> so, awesome. um, yeah, so I never really changed what I did. But I think, as I said, the, the W, the within 10 years of menopause and under the age of 60 was almost a knee jerk reaction. Like, oh, stop it. Only HRT5 dose, the lowest dose for the shortest time. Knee jerk reaction. That has changed in all the global guidelines to. Um, identify treatment goals and treat as long as necessary in all the more recent guidelines. So mm -hmm. I think we've just got to get rid of this age limit nonsense and say, why is it there? Let's not be defensive in medicine. Let's treat the patient. Yeah. We're going to open it up to questions in two minutes. So everybody get ready. Um, but the, my, the last question that I have for you, Dr. Davis, is have you always been this self-possessed or is this something that has come with, you know, success and, and maturity. Um, I, you, um, to me, have a very uh, clear point of view and it's, um, yeah, it's really uh, inspiring. Oh, I, believe me, I only make comment on stuff I actually feel comfortable at. I mean, my day <laughs> job is medical research, okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have just written one of the large journals commissioned me and a group of, and to identify others to write a updated document on the menopause I have just spent the last three months reviewing all the literature and we've just my team has just re reviewed all the best practice guidelines so I'm actually on top of this at the moment I did an interview on the radio a few years ago and the, and the interviewer misunderstood what I did and was asking me about dementia and I was like oh I don't really know about that oh, I'm not sure oh, I and somebody rang up and said is this person a professor or an idiot <laughs> <laughs> So, I don't know I'll tell yeah. you okay. just, I, yeah. you're asking me questions about something I've just done a lot of work on 
I mean more who you're being, Dr. Davis. I um yeah, I think it's wonderful. Here, this is I'll say it a different way. Um, there's nothing more inspiring than seeing someone in their zone of genius doing what they are passionate about. And it's clear to me that you are in work that you feel passionate about. Well, I love what I do. I have so I you. I'd probably yeah. take the genius out. My my family <laughs> tell you that is a completely inappropriate piece of word to use to describe me. They, I'm a complete klutz. Oh, well, me too. My husband wants me to have a house helmet um, <laughs> because I tend to knock into things, but whatever. I'm great at other things. Um, I know Carolyn has a question, and if anybody else has a question that they want to put in the chat, please feel free. We have Dr. Davis for about 15 more minutes, um, so lucky us. Carolyn, I, I'd love for you to talk to the, you know, the the broad macro context of um, helping women at scale, but you take it away. Yeah. Hi, Dr. Davis. Um, Hi. My question is, uh, and it might be unique to the healthcare experience here in the US, when you shared earlier in the conversation, something about the fact that each woman's care experience will need to be unique to her. The first thing that came to mind for me was like, how does that scale? Because in the US, the provider only has about 15 minutes with you. And it sounds like in the questions that you would need to get under or ask, for a woman to really understand what's going on for them, that a provider, a primary care provider would need to give much more time. So I don't know if you've thought, if you run into that at all or, or given that much thought, or if it's just, it's a relationship with your doctor, you go preventatively, you go once every three months. Like, I don't know what the answer is, but what I thought was how, how does that kind of care scale for something that's so common, you know, for so for a cancer or for diabetes or something, it's like, yeah, it doesn't happen to everybody, but for menopause, it's happening to every woman. So every woman is going to need that kind of care and attention. And just wondered what you think about this, the issue of scale. Oh, look, we're pushing for longer consultations here for um, midlife health checks. And for, there is a midlife health check that's available here, but for people 45 to 50, which if you go through menopause after 50 or before 45, it's not very helpful. So um I think the I think the best way to do with it, deal with the time limitation, um, even though I talk a lot, I try and keep my mouth shut and listen to the patient and get them to talk for most of it. And so most of it is getting information from the patient and the last few minutes actually directing what we do next and then getting the patient back for another 15 minutes. My... As a specialist, my first consultations are 30 minutes. They can be as long as 45 if it's because we have people come in with multiple problems that the specialist is meant to address, but mostly 30 minutes. But um, for primary care physicians, they are short here too. Um, so it's trying to identify the issues, do any investigations that need to be done, get the patient back. Um, the other thing is, what's critically important is to having resources that you can say that because even if you have a longer consultation um, as, as individuals, we can't take in all the information in that intense period. So direct people to um, websites of highly credible information. The Australasian Menopause Society has patient information or people information sheets, not everybody's a patient, um, that are amazing, that are actually being been taken up by the International Menopause Society and translated into multiple languages. So the Australasian Menopause Society has fabulous um, bite-sized one or two page information sheets that can be freely downloaded by anybody from that website. And I strongly um, commend those to you. Yeah, um, maybe we'll link to it from our website too. Um, and the in Australia, we have what's called the Jean Hales Foundation that also has amazing information sheets. And again, all evidence-based, no agenda. And so directing people to where they can find more information so they, they can have time to read it, absorb it, and return to the next consultation with a, bit, a little bit more informed and cr with credible information and also getting asking patients to write down their list of questions to come in with their shopping list of questions because it's so easy to go oh, I forgot to ask that question mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um we have a question from from Trisha um Trisha do you want to come off of, or on the video or um 
if you don't come off a of video, I'll ask it for you. I don't really want to come off video. It's eight o'clock here and I've had a couple glasses of wine, but <laughs> yeah, we can hear I you. Have a question. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm just starting HRT this week. I'm almost 51. I'll be 51 July 4th. And so I started progesterone two days ago and I'm starting an estrogen and testosterone cream tonight, actually. And so I'm hoping this cocktail is going to generally make me feel better, have more energy, lose weight, improve my sex drive. <laughs> um, I'm just wondering if there's any thoughts or recommendations kind of as I start the journey, what should I be looking for, worried about, considering, et cetera? So we don't usually use con we, the we met as an international organizations which was not based there was no pharmaceutical funding for this and I initiated it it was representatives from you know all the major players college of ONG college of physicians in the UK etc endocrine society and the the overall recommendation was against the use of compounded formulations because they're not evidence-based. There's no evidence of dosing. There's no evidence they're even absorbed. Um, there's no evidence that the amount of progesterone is going to protect your uterus against the amount of estrogen you're going to apply. Um, I've seen people who have got come in with mega, you know, blood levels through the roof and blood levels at the floor after spending hundreds of dollars on compounded creams. So we don't use them. And, we, and the international recommendation is not to use them. You can get body identical estradiol that's TG, that's FDA regulated. You can get progesterone that's FDA regulated. Um, testosterone's a bit harder, but you know. So the first question is safety. Will the progesterone cream that you're going to use protect you against the stimulating effects of the estrogen cream on your endometrium? Possibly not. Yes, possibly no. So I don't know what side effects you're going to get. Um, you could be getting too much or too little. And there's no blood test that's going to tell you what dose is right for you. And even if you do the blood test, it doesn't, well, you could have estrogen through your roof, but um, where do you put it? If you put, when we developed, um, when, when creams are developed, like we've got an approved testosterone cream for women in Australia. Um, and that cream, we've done pharmacokinetic studies on large numbers of women. If they put it on their outer thigh, you get different blood levels to putting it on your arm. What's the absorption? What's the dose? What dose do you need for efficacy? That's not been done with these compounded formulations. It's all the best guess. You have no can idea. You get a, can you get an estrogen cream? Dr. Davis, you can, right? So it come, like cream doesn't mean compounding no, no, necessarily, right? There's no cream that's been approved by any... Um, regulatory agency that I'm aware of um, it doesn't it it's the it it works as so other... anytime you have a cream is it a compound to my knowledge yes globally yes okay. I might be I'm prepared to be told I'm wrong but I there's no to my knowledge there's no FDA European medicines TGA Australia approved estrogen cream there are approved gels um, because gel formulation is completely different to a cream there are approved um, skin spray um, that is used in the US. I don't know if it's approved in Europe. Um, it was made by an Australian company. Um, there are estrogen approved um, vaginal rings and patches, and they're all body identical. So there's no okay, reason so, to compound it. So do you think, so, okay. So let's bottom line it for Trish and leave her with some hope because obviously she's in the draft of some symptoms that are don't feel good. So is the, is the, direction to go back or find a practitioner that will help her with a gel you know like sort of issue this the cream route and try and find um, well, I would recommend you use an FDA approved body identical estradiol and progesterone and be confident that this is something that has been tested the dose is is, is understood um, the dosing schedule is understood and I think it puts you in a much safer place. Thank you. So what, what Trish didn't say and what um, I feel the same way, she said, low, thank you, thank you, Trisha. Thanks for asking that great question. Um, she said low sex drive or improve my sex drive. So the thing that I'm a little um, curious about is 
men have what 30 to 40 nanoglobules or whatever however you guys measure it of testosterone and women have 0.03 to 0.04 that's a massive difference yes and like where did where did we become as a as a culture that we need to have these like matched sex drives jamie like is that you don't you don't need to have matched sex drives but going back to trisha's question I would never put a woman on, if someone comes in for the first visit, I wouldn't put them on estrogen and progesterone and testosterone on the first visit. I would use the estrogen and progesterone because you don't know how much of feeling better. You know, if you get some sleep, if your vaginal dryness improves, um, your hot flushes go, your sex drive might improve and you may not need the testosterone. That's so... It's, it should always be step by step. And then the second recommendation is, so after you suddenly given three things to use and after two weeks you feel horrible, you've gained weight, you've got fluid retention, your skin's broken out, which one is it? Yeah. What's causing the problem? So I always I always do things stepwise. I, I would never just straight off put in testosterone into a mix without first settling the hot flushes, night sweats and the sleep and the vaginal dryness. And then mm-hmm. then if, you know, this is a lifelong or many years treatment, there's no urgency to, to get it right all at once. I think the the urgency is wanting to feel better as you well. Yeah, and getting some sleep and getting rid of mm-hmm. the anxiety or the hot flushes or the low mood, they're the things to focus on first and then further along deal with the other stuff yeah in asia um it's common to uh in certain countries it's common to greet someone with have you eaten like that's the common greeting because you automatically check in with them and i think um i think we should ask have you slept (laughs) or how have you slept because then we'll automatically know how someone is (laughs) sleep is everything it's everything it's everything um Okay, so can I go back to my testosterone question? Am I, I mean, asking for a friend, but like where did the expectation that we have these matched sex drives or we need to have this rampant libido come from? You know, yeah. I don't know. Help me understand. I um, the media? I don't know. We know that um, it's it's understanding. Um, well, when, when in a relationship there's a differential in libido, even in young women, it will... Um, put stress on the relationship and um, what you see across the lifespan is that at mid at older women often have low sexual desire and low low libido and it doesn't bother them because there's no situational stress for them and if they choose to be sexual actually so good and if they don't often it's not as much an issue with a partner but it really rears that ugly head around midlife where there becomes often a real differential in libido or postpartum having children suddenly women you know they've been in a relationship there's only two people in the relationship and now there are three Mm -hmm. and often that really affects the woman much more than the man and so I think it's cultural and and sexual counselors will talk very much about trying to understand the mismatch a mismatch and the mismatch can be very problematic and it doesn't mean there's something wrong with the woman yeah. And that's why the definition of um, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, the critical aspect of that de- that definition is the issue is for the woman, not the partner. The woman wants to do something about it for herself, not just to please. Mm. That's critical. I see. That's critical. Okay, say that one more time because I think that's really important. So say that one more time. So... In diagnosing someone with low sexual desire dysfunction or low arousal dysfunction, the dysfunction is not about the relationship or the partner. The dysfunction is the fact that the woman has experienced a drop in sexual desire or arousal that bothers her, that she wants to do something about for herself, not to please the partner. And that's important for two aspects is a woman without a partner can have low sexual desire dysfunction because it bothers her because I see women who aren't partnered and they say, I don't like feeling this lack of me, this lack of my mojo, this lack of my sexual interest because that was how I felt before and that's how I want to feel again. So I wouldn't not 
treat her because she hasn't got a partner. Conversely, I wouldn't treat a woman with low sexual interest because she wants to have higher sexual interest because her partner's expectations. It has to come from her. It has to be something she wants. That's critical. Whoa, though, right? Like, I mean, can we have you back just to talk about this for an hour? Because that's that, I mean, how do you start to know too, right? Because, yeah, I think it's, it's again, complicated. We have one more minute. I mean, can that's the long and short of this number? Well, that's Go why ahead. you don't give testosterone, estrogen, testosterone, progesterone first up. You give the first two, you get rid of the symptoms of this menopause or whatever it is. And you need to have the conversation before just dishing out the testosterone because it's not the band-aid for everything. Yeah, yeah, no, whoa. Holy moly, okay, this has been amazing. You are amazing. We um, are so thankful and really, really grateful. Um, and maybe, I mean, if, if you had fun too, maybe we'll um, do this again. But um, the long and short of it is find a someone that you trust and um, can drop as much knowledge and um, care as Dr. Susan Davis. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for, for and thanks for publishing a 450 articles and like changing the culture <laughs> around menopause and being a badass HRT proponent for 40 years and not deviating from what you know is best. That's 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 amazing. Thank you so much. I wish you all well. Yeah, we yeah. wish you well. Enjoy the future. Um, it's Wednesday or it's Thursday where Dr. Davis is calling. It's Wednesday probably for most of us. So thank you, um, okay. and we'll see you soon. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks for coming. Bye. Bye.